Let's go. Let's go. Oh, no. Do you want to? Sorry, sorry. I'll let you. I'll let you. Next one. I'm excited and I feel relaxed and I'm ready to party. Don't say sorry. You don't need to do that. You don't need to apologize. It's a fucked up female habit. You don't need to be sorry for anything ever. Can you guess what every woman's worst nightmare is? I don't have rage issues! I have nothing to prove to you. When I'm good, I'm very good. But when I'm bad, I'm better. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where allergies are crazy and we're just all sorts of, some of us are all sorts of messed up. <laughs> I'm Karen Peterson, <laughs> joined by Lauren Humphreys Brooks. I know that that was a reference to my Yellow Jacket stream last night or not. It's just like <laughs> all of us are, some of us are all kinds of messed up in different ways. <laughs> Probably I could have said all of us because both of us are in very different ways, but... <laughs> I applaud your Yellow Jacket stream episode. That we My, were talking well, about. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it was it was a result of you you tweeting about like how you were upset that there was no new Yellow Jackets this week. They really could have done a better job of like making sure the whole world knew there would be no episode this week. I and I don't understand why there's not an episode this right. week. I I just like, but for for what reason? You're just skipping it, okay? But yeah, um, like yeah. It's not like the Yellow Jackets crowd is really that invested in the NFL draft. <laughs> is that why they delayed it? I like, don't is, know. But that's that the, the only conflict I can see. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I honestly don't understand some television scheduling. Like there's some, sometimes shows will take a hiatus. I'm like, why are you just not on for two weeks? I don't, I don't get it. But yes, mm. as a result, I had a Yellow Jackets dream last night. In which one of them got kidnapped as the, the they were like adults. And one of them got kidnapped, and then the others were like, You mess with the wrong bitches. And <laughs> they wind up like lighting the dude on fire and burning down an apartment building. And Bob Hoskins is there for some reason. <laughs> and then I woke up and that was what happened. And I was I was just like, Why is Bob Hoskins there? Bob Hoskins couldn't be in Yellow Jackets because Bob Hoskins died a while ago. He, yeah, he's very dead. But I would but love was, it if Bob Hoskins was in Yellow Jackets. And he was like married to one of them. I don't remember which one. <laughs> like, I, feel like, I kind of feel like maybe he was married to Misty, which would sort of make sense in some weird, <laughs> interesting way. But yeah, I was just like, oh, Bob Hoskins. And he was very much like, hey, Bob Hoskins is in this episode. I like it. I like it. Uh, let's make that happen. Karen Kasama, I, I'm sure you can practice necromancy. <laughs> bring him back bring back bob hoskins <laughs> to be in the yellow jackets episode yeah specifically for that purpose <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness so how's everything else going how was your week good it's been a long week for for some reason um how, how about yours um also long I, it yeah <laughs> I'm not feeling great and I don't know it's a combination of things I think but uh it's just been busy it's so crazy busy when you work at a school and the school year is about to wind down and you're about to have you know all the end of year festivities and graduation and stuff it's just a lot <laughs> so and then and then comes summer and it's really slow and it's awesome so 
<laughs> I just got to get through the next four weeks and then you get a little bit of a break. Yeah. Chaos until then. If they cancel any more or skip any more weeks on Yellow Jackets, I'm not going to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. So, uh, well, we thought it'd be fun this week to talk about Warner Brothers, which is celebrating its 100th anniversary this year. Um, and there's some, it's 100 years since the company was officially incorporated. They incorporated yeah, in 1923. Since, it was, since mm-hmm. it was founded. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so, you know, back is, I just learned this, this week, um, as recently as the 1960s, they were still claiming they were founded in 1905 because that is when the four brothers, um, were, uh, they first started kind of building toward the company that would bear their name. The brothers are Harry, Albert, Sam, and Jack. Those were most of them, not their birth names, because um, they were a family of immigrants from Poland. They were um, Polish, Jewish, and uh, when they came to the United States, they anglicized their names, as was the practice. So, um I'm not going to try to pronounce some of their original names because I don't want to butcher them. But um, anyway, so the the brothers, you know, started off, they bought a projector. They started doing exhibitions uh, throughout the, um, well, back east, like Pennsylvania, Ohio area, and eventually founded Warner Brothers in 1923. And at the time, they 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 were one of the big five. They've always been one of the big five studios. But at the time, they were kind of the lesser studio. Um, some of the things, even with with um, their big movie star, their biggest movie star was a dog named Rin Tin Tin. <laughs> and um, even with that, they were their movies were um, just not as big of hits as what you're getting from RKO and, and mm-hmm. 20th century and Paramount MGM. So uh, they set out to, to change that and they started just really ramping up their star power. And so by the thirties, they were making these gangster movies that really took off and just really um, made Warner brothers kind of the big studio that we know today. And of course they've, I mean, they still make gangster movies, but um, they've done all kinds of things since then. And so we're going to talk today a little bit, about um three films that kind of encapsulate different eras and different genres of mgm or no sorry warner brothers history um (laughs) and um and i don't think we could have picked three films that were more different from each other and have less in common other than the studio that made them (laughs) yeah exactly so i was like looking over it's just like these are this is a weird combination of films, you it know, really and not, and some of it is because we we deliberately chose different genres. So they're like there. I guess I think there is some affinity between the first film that we're going to talk about and the last one. There's mm-hmm. a little bit of like relationship there, but but yeah, it's they are they're very, very different films, <laughs> <laughs> like extremely different, and that's cool. So the first one we wanted to talk about is um, this is a a pre code gangster movie um 
And that is The Public Enemy. Now, Warner Brothers made a lot of gangster movies, especially in the 1930s and 40s. Um, They had a whole list. uh, I had it in front of me and now I can't find it. Things like um, um, The Public Public Enemy, I already mentioned. Angels with Dirty Faces. Um, Help me out. What are some other ones? Uh, Little Caesar was one of the Little big Caesar, kind, yes. of, mm-hmm. kind of launching pad in terms of the gangster movies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, with Edward G. Robinson, you've also got The Public Enemy. Um, I'm a fugitive a fu- from a gang, a chain gang. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm a fugitive from a chain gang. Um, and then slightly later, when you get kind of postcode, um, you get into films like Dead End and Angels with Dirty Faces and, and stuff like that. Um, I also listed Scarface, even though Scarface, I don't think is a Warner Brothers film. I think it's a, I believe it's a United Artists film, but it had like strong affinities with, um, with what Warner Brothers was doing. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. So uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about the public enemy specifically. Uh, This film was directed by William Wellman, who, um, he directed wings yes i was i was trying to talk about like he had gone to world war one and so when he mm-hmm. like he was a, a i think a pilot in world war one and so when he came back and was getting involved in film they tapped him to direct wings and that was the first best picture winner so um from there he he had a pretty pretty notable career and one of the films that he directed was the public enemy which um which stars James Cagney, Jean Harlow, Edward Woods, and Joan Blondell, and um, was produced by Daryl Zanuck, who is a major producer for Warner Brothers, and mm-hmm. um, and did a lot of good and a lot of really bad things <laughs> during his <laughs> tenure there. So um, why don't you talk a little bit about The Public Enemy, Lauren? Well, one of the, uh, just, just going back a little bit, one of the things that I think we have to emphasize that Warner Brothers was really important in terms of the kind of development of the studio era. First of all, Warner Brothers were known for being really unkind to their stars. Like Jimmy mm-hmm. Cagney had many things to say about how terrible Warner Brothers was. So did Humphrey Bogart. Uh, so did a lot of the stars that were under them. Um, but they had this kind of reputation. They would just sort of produce films. They just kept on you know, like making these films, some of them not not necessarily low budget, but very like cranking them out very much. Um, Was it Jack that had um, the quote, something like, I don't want it good. I want it Tuesday. Yeah. Yeah. So Warner <laughs> Brothers became sort of known for this. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and and but one of the things that they were really focused on and one of the, the places that they had a great deal of success was in gangster films, but what were broadly known as social problem films. And so the whole idea, particularly in the pre-code and then just post-code era, was depicting sort of the underclasses of the United States. So the the gangsters, the immigrants, the people who very often didn't get shown in film in the same way, right? And talking about like the issues that were actually accompanying this. So poverty, violence, prostitution, things like that. And I think one of the interesting things about The Public Enemy, um, in addition to films like Little Caesar and I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang and things like that, but particularly with Public Enemy, it, it, it opens, right, with this kind of disclaimer saying like, we do, this is about a, 
problem in our society and we do not support this kind of thing. Um, this is about, you know, a young man who could be found in any city. And that that's kind of the, the <laughs> tone. And then at the end of the film, they reinforce that. They're just like, we do not support this in any way. <laughs> the middle of the film um, and granted, uh, you know, spoiler alert, the gangster played by uh, James Cagney, Tom, he he comes to a very bad end. And I think that we should definitely talk about how the film ends. But um, for the most part, the film paints a very attractive picture of the gangster. Yeah, it doesn't uh, look so bad. <laughs> yeah, K- Cagney, I, and I think that some of it, Cagney is very cool. He's very like, he's this badass, the way that he walks, the way that he moves, you know, like everything, the fast the fast pace of his dialogue, all of it. It shows the gangster as being very cool, coming to a bad end, but having a lot of fun before that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's definitely what the film depicts. So it's, it's that interesting kind of tension between showing something without necessarily endorsing it. And definitely a lot of the Warner Brothers films from this period show those issues like social problems, but particularly when it comes to the gangster as sort of like, oh, this is this is terrible. He's terrible. Like, but look how much fun he has. Um, and and I think that that's definitely prevalent here. It's de- you definitely see it in Little Caesar. Um, if you look at something more like I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, which is one of the bleakest films from this period about criminality and about and about poverty. And basically it's about a man who isn't a criminal and winds up more or less being railroaded and becomes a criminal as a result of the justice system. Um, the public enemy doesn't really do that. This, this is a guy who has a number of choices throughout his life to not be a gangster to not become a criminal and the choices that he makes are is is to become a a small-time crook a bootlegger a murderer like all kinds of things and eventually to die very horribly <laughs> <laughs> yeah um i'm trying to decide where i want to go with this so there's just a lot of things about Tom in particular that we just learned, like you you were saying, you know, and we see them from a young age. He's making deci- like bad decisions from the time he's a kid. Like um, he steals some skates to give to um, is it Matt's sister. Um, but then he yeah. like trips her with them and stuff like he just is kind of just rotten from the beginning. <laughs> but yet he's there's just this like inherent like ability about him. So even when he's just doing bad stuff, you're just like, oh, but that's just Tom. And this is where that whole boys will be boys, you know, <laughs> kind of thing comes from. But um, or that it just kind of really draws on that. But um, but it there is more to it than that. It's not that simple. And it's clear that Tom is just trouble, but you just, there's still something that just kind of makes you just want to, like, like with his mom, who just really wants to believe that he's turned his life around, that he's, like, stopped making all these bad choices, that he's doing good things now, and, and, um, there's kind of that sense of that, like, we want, we want Mm -hmm. good things for Tom, (laughs) and, uh, but he just keeps making the wrong choices all along the way. Well, and one of the things I think the film does really well is that it shows the alternatives and how the alternatives themselves aren't terribly attractive. Mm-hmm. Um, so it particularly his older brother, Mike, who yeah. is the straight laced one. He's he's the good kid. Right. And and there's very much, you know, it's it's stereotyping. It's very much tropes, the good boy and the bad boy. Right. 
Um, and of course, the bad boy always has more fun. But one of the things that it shows in kind of as as an ancillary almost to Tom's narrative is Mike, you know, working hard and then he goes off to war and he comes back and it's obvious that he's traumatized. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like lecturing his younger brother about how you've got to stand up, you've got to be be a good man, all of this stuff. And there's a really good scene actually where Tom basically says like, you know, don't give me hell for for being a murderer. You've killed people. You've right. killed a lot of people. Um, you know, you got medals for killing people. And there, while the film doesn't, you know, it doesn't say like, oh, this is exactly the same. It does sort of show how trapped both of them are in a certain sense. They're trapped into a situation both because of their class, because of their families, where Tom is successful. Like he is, he's the one that makes money. He's the one that, um, you know, is able to give his mother things. Whereas Mike is the good boy who doesn't really get anything and still winds up in in, um, bad situations and everything. And particularly the ending, there's this impression that something else is going to happen to Mike afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and none, of, and it, it is this fatalism almost none of, almost none of it is your fault. You kind of have these two paths you can take and neither one of them are great. Right. Yeah. And then, so how do you make that choice? And I think, I think mm-hmm. in, in Mike's case, I think it, I mean, who knows what he would do, but um, after the camera stopped, but it's like, you know, I think what a lot of times what people do depends on their their integrity and what their personal integrity is and what they, you know, not necessarily that they think, oh, well, this is right. But um, if their own personal morality will, you know, allow for for certain things. And so I think in this case, Tom is just a lot more. um, uh, Not world weary, but just he he just is a lot looser with like his sense of right and wrong it's like it, what does mm-hmm. what does it matter if 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 no one's getting hurt or if only bad people are getting hurt like who cares you know whereas mike is just like no wrong is wrong um but i think when when tom calls him out and says that line about you didn't get those medals for shaking hands with germans i think yeah. that kind of unlocks something for him i think that you know and this is something that um i always used to before I really started diving into um, classic movies and older films and really starting to, to kind of um, not just, not just watch them, but really start to analyze and and pull them apart and really look at them closely. I just kind of looked at the entire genre of, of war and any movies that had like, you know, soldiers and, and, you know, these hero soldiers and stuff as not being particularly critical of military and war and what i have what i have learned over the past few years um and what i see in movies like this now it's like oh no they don't just like roll out the red carpet and assume that you know this is all heroic Mm -hmm. they there's definitely there are definitely degrees of of criticism there and i think that's something that you see here um with with tom and it's like it's not done in like when he makes that that when they have that argument it's not like oh he's crossed a line by daring to question a soldier it's like no he's making a a valid point 
Yeah, and and I think that that's highlighted as well in that scene because you see kind of the the physical ravages of the war on mm-hmm. Mike, like you, and they they've like darkened his eyes, all of this stuff. He is traumatized, right? Yeah, and he's experienced things that are probably similar to some of the things that Tom has experienced. Only, you know, he he does have this kind of moral compunction, I guess, against murder. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the interest, I, I agree with you. One of the interesting things, particularly about pre-code films and films of this period, is is you think about it. This is like this film was made in nineteen thirty-one. This is like you know a bit more than a decade after the end of um, of World War One. Right? Yeah, in the movie, oh, Mike comes back in nineteen twenty, so it's only been eleven years. Um, you've got you've got a, uh, a a director who was in World War One. So there is this element to a lot of films of this period that is very critical of war um, that you don't see in the same way, you know, in the lead up, especially the lead up to World War Two, and then especially the aftermath of World War Two, um, for for a lot of different reasons, change in generations and things like that. But there's a lot of criticism of war in itself and a lot of acknowledgement even kind of as as a secondary element of the story of the trauma and of the people who went to war you know this is depicting the underclasses this is depicting poor people mm-hmm. right these these are people who live kind of right on the edge of society to begin with and that's why you've got this interesting kind of conflict where you've got the good boy who does all of the good boy things and does all of the right things and still has all of these issues and the bad boy who in some ways makes something of himself and is able to earn money and is able to do more, um, but is doing it in from a criminal perspective. Um, I'm always interested in these, these kinds of films that you realize how close some of these like historical events actually are and how films are actually depicting and dealing with things like the aftermath of World War One, Prohibition, right? So prohibition becomes a major element in this film and 1931 you're still it's still in the middle of prohibition mm-hmm. yeah i remember a couple of years ago someone was complaining about the fact that there was a um a movie about the gulf war but it was like i can't remember which movie it was and what specifically the complaint was but they were basically like it's too soon for these types of movies and it's like no let's look at the beginning of film history you know and this is a perfect example i mean Mm -hmm. the movie starts with tom and and tom and matt are kids uh mike matt yeah sorry mike is the brother matt is the friend um they're kids and it opens in 1909 which is only 20 what 22 years before like previous from when the movie is coming out so that's like making movies about stuff that happened in 2001 what happened in 2001 Hmm. (laughs) well yeah and a lot and you think about a lot of the audience a lot of the viewers are going to be world war one vets are going to be people that were alive that were children in 1909 right Mm -hmm. so there is there's a contemporary element to it even though you know now we look at it be like oh my god that was so long ago you're just like, well, no, if a film's made in 1931 and the opening is 1909, yeah, that's not that early. <laughs> that's not that different, right? Okay. Most of these people were alive then. Yeah, exactly. So um, any other thoughts about the public enemy? Now, this was your first time watching it, but you didn't realize it was your first time watching it. <laughs> yeah, so I honestly thought I I got I to gotta trade in my film history card. Um, 
I I really thought I had seen the public enemy and I was like, oh yeah, of course it's the one with Cagney and the grapefruit scene. Like we all, that's a famous scene. Um, we, we all know that. And I was like, okay, sure. And so I started it and then partway through the film, I was like, I have not seen this movie. I have not seen this at all. I, I do not like, this is not real. And what I realized is that I, I had confused at some point I had confused the plot of little Caesar with the plot of public enemy. And I hadn't like swapped out the leads or anything like that, but I had just decided that Cagney was in public, the public enemy, which is the plot of little Caesar. And so it was an odd experience where I was like partway through the film was like, I have not seen this movie. This is definitely not some. Something. <laughs> um uh I did have I did have one more thing that I wanted to say about this. Well, Jean Harlow, who is there for like three scenes, mm-hmm. um, I don't know why they don't use Jean Harlow more thoroughly. She gets like second billing. Yeah, it's um, weird. Yeah, it's a very strange, like, why is Jean Harlow here? <laughs> and like she's not getting to do anything. She doesn't have like any weight. She's she's good for what she has to do, but there's nothing there, right? Mm-hmm. Um the other thing I think that does have to be mentioned about this one is the the violence. Um, because again, this is a pre-code film. This is just pre-code, also. This is a couple of years before the code really comes into force. Um, but it's still a lot of the elements that were um objected to around uh around gangster films and around social problem films like this is the level of violence like there there's murders on screen people bleed um the ending of the film is one of the most shocking i guess in some ways endings where tom's body is left on his mother's doorstep and it's left like propped up against the door so that when his brother opens the door he falls in um, it's really shocking in a lot of ways, like the the level of violence that is being depicted directly on screen and and also just the cruelty of it. There's a meanness to it um, that it is, is part of why, you know, Cagney's character is so fascinating and also so kind of repellent at the same time. Yeah. So it's, it's a very interesting film. Um, and I, I think it's probably one of the the best examples from that period of like also just the low levelness of the crime that is being depicted. Um, like in something like Little Caesar, which is actually about kind of the rise and fall of a, of a Capone-like character. This is more about like, Tom never becomes a big name. He never becomes a boss. He never becomes the leader of a gang. He's kind of always this secondary guy who is disposable. Right. Um, and that's that's what's depicted finally at the end of the film, that all of these guys are disposable. They will be chewed up and spat out by people that they think are their friends, by the entire system that doesn't really care about whether or not they live or die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. And and the thing is that it it's not that Tom is like fine with the idea of just like being offed one day, but I don't, I don't think he ever really thinks about it much like he doesn't kind of let himself think about it he just he's very much just existing like he'll just do the next thing you know all the time it's just what's the next job what's the next you know distraction or whatever like he's he's not climbing a ladder he's not trying to yeah it's that element of fatalism that i think is is much more prevalent in something like i'm a fugitive from a chain gang right but it's similar in some ways in the public enemy where it's not like you know he's probably going to die young and he probably knows that 
Um, but he's trying to kind of get what he can while he can. It's that kind of mentality. Yeah. Uh, and, and either a rival gang is going to get him or he's going to get caught by the cops and wind up in prison, wind up on, in, in death row. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the conclu- that's the natural conclusion to him. And so it's interesting that these films, which kind of unpack in a lot of ways, some of the, the issues of poverty and the issues of crime, don't give solutions to it. They're sort of like, here's a problem. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, but but like, so what does he have to choose when he's 10 years old that he's not going to be a criminal? There's absolutely no chance for him to like be anything other than that after that point, because that's just who he is. Yeah. It's a good movie. <laughs> it's a good movie. Um, by the way, all three of these that we're talking about today are available on HBO Max. So if you haven't seen them, um, check them out there. Yes, in nice prints too, I must yeah. say. Yeah, they really are. Um, HBO Max will be Max, I guess, at some point in May. I don't I don't know why, but anyway. <laughs> For some reason. <laughs> For reasons. I'm sure they have them. What they are, I don't know. <laughs> so let's talk about another big, massive gangster movie uh, from <laughs> from 1942. Now, Voyager. <laughs> Just like from one one genre to another, <laughs> a very different one. Yeah, this is not gangstery at all. This is. Um, this is a romance movie and it's a coming of age movie in a lot of ways and um and finding yourself and uh that is now Voyager which stars Betty Davis, Paul Heinrich, Claude Rains and Gladys Cooper. It was directed by Irving Rapper and written by Casey Robinson from a novel from 1941 by Olive Higgins Prudy. And um Yeah, so this movie is Betty Davis plays a young woman who was very much not planned. (laughs) She was a surprise baby, and her mother never let her forget that. And so she is very, uh, very insecure, very, um, very troubled, very quiet. um, And just her mother's constantly on her and always trying to, to fix her instead of just letting her be who she is. And then a psychiatrist comes along one day um, that is introduced by, I think it's her sister-in-law. And he's like, she should come to my sanitarium. Now I hear that and I go, "Um, no, sanitariums are bad. But in this case, it actually is a good thing. (laughs) Because away from her mother, she blossoms. (laughs) It's also Claude Rain. So you're just like, if Claude Rain saw it, it's just like, I need you to come to my sanitarium. That's when you begin asking, what genre of film am I in? (laughs) It's so true. (laughs) Because my choice depends on that answer. (laughs) Exactly. Is it a women's picture with like romance elements? Or is it a horror film? Because something will have, like, there there are many directions we can go to. so true so um so overall lauren what are some of your thoughts about now voyager (laughs) excuse me as a movie Uh, as as a movie um i think you know now voyager again this is one that i've come to very very late i only recently saw this for the first time um i it's an it's a really fascinating film and i think it's a fascinating film for the time period because it's 
it's very much, you know, a, a quote women's picture, right? That's kind of the genre that it falls into. It's this kind of big, weepy, um, like kind of not unrequited romance, but like, you know, impossible oh. romance, right? That develops. And, but one of the things that I think kind of sets it apart is definitely Betty Davis and her, um, not her star power and her presence on screen, but the kind of different permutations that her character goes through, some of which are almost silly and almost ridiculous to us now, I think, but she gives it such weight and such honesty that I think it actually winds up elevating the film and it makes the film into something more than it might've been. Um, one of the the bizarre things, I guess, in this film is that we're introduced to Betty Davis and she's like, she's like a caricature of dowdiness. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she's got, she's got like the, the big glasses and the bushy eyebrows and <laughs> she is quotation marks fat. Um, which I'm sorry, even in her fat period, uh, in this one, just like that is, that is Betty Davis in a dress that's too big for her. Like yep. that's, that's what we're looking at right now. Um, but I, one of the things I think that makes it less funny uh, to modern eyes, at least is, her, is again, her performance, the body language, and it doesn't change. It's not like her appearance changes and suddenly she changes. She continues through a lot of the film to have this kind of, this this attitude of like receding from everything of stepping away from everything of protecting herself a great deal kind of folding in on herself in so many ways and it's not until fairly like late about halfway through the film even a little bit more than that where she actually begins to become more confident move with confidence become more like the glamorous betty davis that we know um and and i think that that kind of makes the film stronger and elevates the film and, and um also makes it more relatable because it really isn't a it's not really about her appearance in a lot of ways it's about why her appearance is as as it is why she, because she's been abused basically and i think that the film does a very good job at not shying away from that the mother is abusive yeah. and quite obvious throughout the entire film that what she's working through really is the things that have been imposed upon her not by society even but by her mother and by the way that her mother has treated her and by the abuse that she has suffered. And I, so for that reason, I like it. I think it's very interesting. Yeah. I think this is a movie where, I mean, I love Betty Davis. I think, you know, her, her career, her filmography is just a really fascinating one. And I think that there's so many great performances there. Obviously, I mean, she was nominated for like 12 Academy Awards, you know, something like that over her career. And, um, but I, th I think what's interesting about now Voyager and totally your point about <laughs> like they just put her in dresses that are too big and stuff like that. So it's like physically it's a little bit um, a little bit silly, but her performance before she, before this character really comes into her own before she really starts to uh, this character, Charlotte, before she really starts to have confidence and to believe in herself betty davis's performance um in this this very quiet very insecure very shy um kind of scared person she really sells it she does such a it's such a great job because she i don't feel like she ever plays it over the top which is something that betty davis is very good at doing um 
Mm -hmm. And, and I think that that's just such a, a good, um, example of her star power. This is still like early in her awards run, but not like, this is not like at the beginning of her career though. Yeah. She was a star. Like, I, I think that that's one of the things that the showcases and that Warner brothers were very good at making stars. Yeah. Um, they made a lot of them. Jimmy Cagney, Humphrey Bogart, um, Betty Davis, Olivia de Havilland. Uh, there were there were a lot of people that were just like they had this star quality and they had this star power. This is very much like Betty Davis kind of at the the top of her star power. And it's interesting to see her in a role that is very different from i think what we expect from her in a lot of ways she is because for most of the film she isn't glamorous and even when she becomes glamorous she is there's still that undercurrent that like something could send her back and i think so much of the tension of the second half of the film is about like is she just gonna get stomped on again you know is she gonna turn into the the woman that she was before despite all of the progress that she has made um Something I really like here is that there there is definitely that element of like her being made over by love, right? She's deeply lonely and she finds a man who is also lonely in his own way in, a, in kind of a different way. And they begin this sort of tension-filled romance, <laughs> right? Yeah. And and they're attracted to each other. They like each other. They There's something in the two of them that very much speak to one another. And, but it's so much of the film is not really about her, like getting the guy or being changed by love or anything like that. It's, it, it's about her gaining confidence and actually being willing and happy to live the life that she now has on her own terms, independent of her mother yeah, um, and independent of the things that are required of her. And I think that's ultimately what I love about it. Because uh, I actually really like this movie a lot. I first saw it a few years ago. I um, got the Criterion um, version sent to me. And I was like, I've never seen this. I'm going to watch it. So I I just, I really like this movie. And I think a big part of the reason why is because of the fact that her ability to, to continue on and to take on um, or really, really become this woman that she is even though that's kickstarted by this doctor and then really helped along by, by this, this man that she meets and starts to fall in love with. It's not dependent on him. It's, it's like he helps her, but she, she gets to a point where she's able to, to find her own version of happiness and feel confident in herself because she now is like, she gets to a point where she understands that she's good and that she's, she's, Mm-hmm. she's not ev- anything that her mother spent all of her life telling her that she was and so it's like it becomes it's a romance and it's you know there's this sweet this bittersweetness to it but the her story doesn't depend on that romance and it doesn't it doesn't have to it doesn't have to end with with this beautiful like happy love ending yeah it, it's it kind of it upends a little bit, not completely, but it upends a little bit this whole idea of the only way that a woman's life is fulfilled, especially in the 1940s, right? Yeah. The only the only way that a woman's life is fulfilled is by getting married and having children, right? And it's interesting because in over the course of the film, she has that opportunity. She she meets another man. 
she likes him, right? She doesn't, she's not in love with him, but she likes him. He's a nice guy, right? Mm -hmm. And she has this opportunity of like, you could get married and have children and do all of the things that you're supposed to do. And she ultimately, she makes a decision. It's a great scene because she makes a decision where she's just like, this is wrong for us. This is wrong for me. And this is a bad thing for you. We don't want this. Yeah. And they, and they ultimately part ways in, in very amicably. Right. And like, I like, I like that character as well, because he's not like, how dare you? You know, it's, it's very much like, okay, yeah, I understand kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, but it does in, despite the limitations of women in the 19, in the 1940s and particularly this woman, it does give that kind of, there's another option there's another world that she can live in and um and it doesn't have to end with true love and marriage and children and all of the things and and in fact her relationship with her mother shows that that can that actually can be very um stultifying and can can turn very ugly and and bad because um because you know you're you're more wrapped up in the social uh, the social requirements of your position, then you aren't actually whether or not you love your child and take care of your child. Yeah. Um, and so I, yeah, I like that the film does that. It's, it's, I don't want to say this necessarily progressive, but it's almost accidentally progressive in some ways. It kind of gives that, that hint of another choice to be made. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's ultimately why I really like it is it's not, it doesn't tidy everything up into like this perfect package of like, this is what a woman needs in life. This is, or even men, you know, this is like the key to happiness. And it, it, it almost, it, for me, it almost leaves you with the sense of like, there's no such thing as a happy ending. There's just the choices that we make in life. And, mm-hmm. you know, we can just, we can just move forward and we can find our own version of, of happiness, um, whatever that looks like for us. It it depicts a different kind of love as well, because yeah. so their their attraction to each other, their their romance is very it's emotional, it's sexual. There it, there's it's romantic. It's very much there. Right. Mm-hmm. But both of them, by the end of the film, because of the other choices that they have made in their lives and because of some of the choices that have been imposed on them, some of the things that have been imposed on them, they can't be together. Right. right. And they find a a way to love each other without you know being married without going to bed together all of that without having a child together all of those things that is still an expression of love and it's not it's very much treated as a legitimate expression of love Mm -hmm. um that is still very fulfilling for both of them is still going to make both of them and a, a young girl very happy right and give all of them kind of the opportunity to love each other to care about each other but not in the totally traditional sense that a lot of films of the same period kind of ask us to accept yeah yeah um any other thoughts on now voyager i i again this is one of those is the women's picture films that Mm -hmm. that warner brothers the kind of sweeping romance that warner brothers sort of was known for (laughs) Um, I mean, I believe Warner Brothers produced Gone with the Wind, I believe. Uh, they distributed it. Mm-hmm. And so you've got these, these you know, big romances and these big stories of like passionate desire and all of that. And in some ways, it, 
it's interesting. In some ways, it would almost be a cop out if somehow like Paul Heinrich's wife died or <laughs> left right. him or something like that. I'd be like, oh, now we could be together. It's like, no, no, the tension. <laughs> you have to maintain the tension. Yeah, exactly. And I think a, a decade or two later, that's exactly what would have happened. They would have tried to force this like, and they lived happily ever after type of ending. And yeah, that wouldn't have. I don't know. I just don't think that would have felt as satisfying in in weird ways. But uh, yeah. So all right. So Warner Brothers continues to make movies um, <laughs> for a very long time. Yeah, they, I'm gonna they jump ahead quite a few years. Do yeah. But I mean, just kind of along the way, um, you know, they they the Warner Brothers cartoons are hugely popular. You have. Um, they start winning all kinds of of best pictures and stuff over the years. They, you know, World War One uh, is gone. World War Two comes in. They start making lots of World War Two movies. So many World War Two movies, and um, then they they get into um, they they start doing they start kind of branching out. So they start distributing independent films uh, a lot. They, but they're still very much continuing on um, into producing just big, big movies. And in 19... Oh, sorry. I just wanted to interject really quickly. Warner Brothers, if anyone thinks that like, you know, oh, Warner Brothers 100 years, isn't that amazing? All that great stuff. This is the studio that Olivia de Havilland sued in the 1940s for breach of contract. There you go. Mm -hmm. Um, And and the studios ruled in her favor, uh, or the court ruled in her favor, and she eventually left Warner Brothers. But this was the the, the result was um the very slow but steady destruction of the studio system so warner brothers as a company was not great (laughs) right yeah it's true well and then like let's just look so at the beginning we talked about the big five which was rko Mm -hmm. 20th century fox paramount warner and mgm and so it's like look at where we're at today of course four of those do still exist but so like rko um got acquired eventually 20th century fox now is owned by disney so that brand still exists, but Fox doesn't, you know, essentially. Paramount Warner is still going strong and MGM has been acquired. So the fact that Paramount and Warner are still holding on, still still making big movies and um, just still in the game, like there, 100 years really is an achievement. Um, yeah. Whether that is good or bad in your eyes is up to you, but <laughs> it's a hundred years is a big deal. They're yeah, the only ones ch- that have done it. Yeah, they're it's it's remarkable, but yeah, it's like the, the I think we always have to remember that the studio system is not a good thing, and unfortunately, we're we seem to be moving back in that direction because of some of the choices made by our current Supreme Court. Yeah, and uh, and and other things and. And we are kind of gravitating back that way. And, uh, and Warner Brothers remains and continues to be a big part of it. It's ingrained in their history, really. Oh, it really is. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see because, I mean, they were part of the Paramount decision from the 1940s. And that was rolled back just a couple of years ago, uh, just in the time that we have had this podcast. So in the last five years, that was that was reversed by our Supreme Court. And um, 
and war- it's so it's going to be interesting to see as over the next couple of years as we really start to see the actual fallout of that how it does impact studios mm-hmm. but um yeah so in 1989 um warner brothers releases batman which had been a hugely successful comic um decades before they'd had a movie in the 60s and a tv show that i used to watch all the time when i was a kid um on reruns i did not watch it when it was originally run because i was not alive in the 60s (laughs) but uh (laughs) just clarifying that but um anyway uh so in 1989 they released batman with jack nicholson and michael keaton and it's hugely successful um and this was not the this was not the first superhero like comic book movie because we'd had some good Superman ones and some others too. But this really, the release of Batman was big deal and it just kind of really opened up um, the genre, like reopened the genre of superhero movies and in, in new, some good, some very bad ways, <laughs> but Batman itself was really fun <laughs> and it spawned a sequel that um is like i don't even know where to go with this so um 1992 we have batman returns we see michael keaton come back as batman and we are introduced to danny devito as the penguin and michelle pfeiffer as catwoman um it's really it's funny because in recent years people started saying batman returns is definitely a christmas movie i would like to remind you it was released in june (laughs) But it's set at Christmas. But it is set at Christmas. So I can go either way. But it's like same with Die Hard. Die Hard is set at Christmas and it came out in June. So, you know, and so I think Gremlins too, actually, now that I think about it. But, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. Um, so Batman Returns does see the return of Tim Burton also directing. We have a new writer, we have new um uh production designer, which is I believe in this one it was Bo Welch who did stuff like he, he he's worked with Burton a lot. He did um I think Beetlejuice and some other big stuff. Um and but the reason I specifically mentioned Bo Welch is because one of the things about Batman Returns that I find so fascinating is how this is only three years later and Go- Gotham City with even with the same director <laughs> with the same star something happened to Gotham City in the three years <laughs> since the Joker fell off of a church. <laughs> <laughs> so it's I like gotham that. gotham leaned into its own aesthetic that's really that's did. what happened <laughs> <laughs> it really did so um yeah so the uh, i mean i don't know how much we need to talk about the plot of this movie because i feel like everybody has seen it but um and is the plot really the point of this no film? not I mean, at all when you come down to it like <laughs> this is a film that subsists purely on aesthetic and vibes like honestly (laughs) yeah yeah it's so true so i will say here's the thing so this came out when i was in high school and um obviously i loved the first one had watched a bunch you know and then this one comes out i actually the first time i saw it i didn't like it because it was so much darker than the first movie and a lot more violent I really I, I love Danny yeah. DeVito, but I really did not like the penguin. Like he's he's scary, but not 
to me at the time, not in a fun way. He was just deeply disturbing. And I just couldn't, I couldn't reconcile that these two movies were a first and a second. Like they just, it felt, even though you have the same director and the same lead, it just felt like two completely different movies. And it just was really hard for me. So it took a long time before I came around to, oh, Batman Returns is good, actually. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, Batman Returns is is one step away from a horror film. Yeah. It's, it's not quite quite a horror film, but it very much leans into that, the grotesqueness of the Penguin in particular. But the entire aesthetic, like the, I think the Penguin and Danny, De- Danny DeVito's performance actually fits into the rest of the film very well. Um, but yeah, it's much darker. It's much more sexual. Uh, it's much more like, um, let like me say that the, even the change in, in Gotham's appearance, it's leaning into these sort of dark, cartoony comic book aspects of Batman, even more so than Batman, the first 1989 Batman, which Jack Nicholson is terrifying as mm-hmm. the Joker, uh, caused all like scarred me for, for years, <laughs> um, but there's there's definitely more of a lightness to both Nicholson's performance and the film as a whole. So I think in both Batman and Batman Returns, you've got villains and characters who fit into the the milieu of the film and uh, very well. But the milieu that you say is very different, and that seemed to be the attitude of Warner Brothers as well because they turn around and bring back and bring in Joel Schumacher mm-hmm. um, in 1995 to make a much still dark but much more like quote family friendly friendly batman (laughs) and that begins the slow slide into um oblivion with batman forever (laughs) batman and robin and and then kind of the reinvigoration much later of um uh with christopher nolan and the the dark knight series Mm -hmm. so it's interesting actually how how sort of the trajectory of batman (laughs) It's like Tim Burton went too far. Let's bring it back. Oh no, no one likes that. Uh, <laughs> let's make it really dark and not fun at all. Let's just go that direction. Yeah, it's um. So I think overall, so first we specifically want to talk about Batman Returns, and we'll talk about some of the the fun key elements of that in a second. But I think overall, just looking at the totality of where this character has gone all under under warner brothers because the the big part of the reason that they keep making new batman movies every few years is so they can hang on to that um that copyright so uh so yeah like from here from batman returns then you have the next one is um bat what was the next one batman Batman forever forever yeah. Which used to be my favorite Batman movie, I will say. Oh, I loved Batman Forever. Yeah. It's so fun. I actually thought Jim Carrey and uh, Tommy Lee Jones were great villains. Um, like it's just a it's just a fun movie. Um, but it does have, you know, it's it, it definitely is not the same as as that original, like that 89 Batman. And that's okay. I I mean it's the it's this is when they recast, they have Val Kilmer because um michael keaton was done then they then they have this problem because val kilmer at the time was not a very pleasant person to work with which he himself will acknowledge (laughs) and 
I think it was Joel Schumacher who was like, yeah, I'm not working with that guy again. So they recast Batman again to George Clooney, gave him like zero lines. I think he has 15 lines in the whole movie. Um, And they do this Batman and Robin, which is just not good. And yet I actually kind (laughs) of love it. Because it's so bad. <laughs> Uma Thurman innocent. Uma Thurman, I think, yep. is great as Poison Ivy in that oh, movie. Oh, she's fantastic. Yeah. She's having a fantastic time. <laughs> and I I was just like, just make a movie about her. Like, just just ignore everybody else. Just make a movie about her and we'll, we'll be good. I it's... actually kind of like Batman and Robin. I admit, like, I have, I had fun with it. Oh, yeah. Like, it's it's not a good movie, but it's just it's just goofy and fun. And I, I enjoy it. And that's the thing is, like, I like fun Batman. And but I OK, so then we jump forward to 2000, I think, five with Batman Begins, which is a very different version. This is based on a separate set of comics uh, that Christopher Nolan does. So then we have the trilogy of Batman Begins, The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises um, I still think they should have called the last one the Cape Crusader. But anyway, um, I so I know you and I are not on the same page on that trilogy, but I think that what it's trying to do is very different. And I think that yeah. um, and I think that that's that's good. I think that's fine. I, it's not trying to be those 1990s um movies it's it's doing something very different which that yeah. set of of comics did with the character too yeah no it d- definitely i won't go into my issues with all all of that um the but yeah it it is they are of a piece those three films are of a piece they're definitely what nolan wants to do with the character they're not disconnected in any sense um my my problem is always that at, at the end of the day i do think superheroes are silly mm-hmm. and and because they are, they're yeah. got like, and especially people, someone like Batman who dresses, he was a ridiculously rich guy who dresses up like a bat <laughs> and fights crime. Like that's silly. That's stupid. Yeah. Right. So the, the fun to me of, of any superhero movie is how much fun is the film? Like, <laughs> why am I watching this is, and the problem that I have with the, the Nolan Batmans is always that it, they take themselves so seriously yeah. And everyone within them takes it so seriously that I come out going like, but you're a guy dressed <laughs> like a bat. Like, that's not serious. And I, I'm really tired of like geeks being like, no, this is very serious stuff. It's like, no, it isn't. It yeah. is cartoons for children. That's <laughs> what this all started. So mm-hmm. like, we can have fun with it. But it has to be fun. If you try to tell me, oh, it's serious. It's very important. It's like, no, it isn't. It's a dude in a bat outfit. That's my that's my rant. I'm done. That's it. <laughs> no, I, I, I that is totally fine. Thank you for that. Because the thing is that I agree with you um, that, yes, it is silly. It's stupid. And and I think that the fans take those movies way too seriously. Um and I, I think that's part of why the Dark Knight is so good because even Heath Ledger's Joker, like he's ha- like that's that's the one time where you start to really have a character that's kind of calling out how silly all this is. Um, it doesn't go as far as you know the earlier films did, but um, anyway, I yeah, I, I think that like with so many things what ultimately ruins stuff is the fans and some people just are 
just ridiculous. And so because of the Christopher Nolan Batman series that is really well made, really well performed, there's a lot of good things about it. I think people have just now leaned into, well, we demand these like really deep, meaningful things from our our superhero movies instead of like let's let it go back to just being goofy and fun again you know and that's part of why Mm -hmm. that's part of why sorry now we're going off on a big old tangent but this is part of why birds of prey is such a fun movie because it doesn't take itself (laughs) too freaking seriously well and and to to that point and to bring it back to to batman returns um i i think one of the things that worked for me with birds of prey is that you get this It's again, all of these characters are inhabiting a specific world Mm -hmm. and it's an extreme world. It's a world that doesn't really exist. It's a comic book world. Yeah. Right. And, but they make sense within that world and they're saying things about our world within it. And, and I think that that's one of the things that I really like also, especially on this rewatch of Batman Returns, all of these characters are inhabiting a very strange place. And they're very strange within that strange mm-hmm. And because of that, I think that you can feel and understand kind of their motivations better. Um, they, it's not serious, but it's also not like, I'm going to mock this necessarily. It's, this isn't serious, it's fun, but also within this world, these are real people and these are their real things that they do and their real problems, right? Yeah. And, both Birds of Prey and Batman Returns, I think, strikes that balance really well and makes it fun, but also does allow for, for commentary, for actual, you know, statements about gender and sexuality and all kinds of things that run through those stories. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And in the case of Batman Returns, what you have is someone who, uh, in The Penguin, he is born to Pee Wee Herman and... Uh, I remember what a big deal that was when this movie came out. <laughs> People were like, Batman movie. Um, I, completely, kind of I completely forgot about that until I rewatched this film. Just like, is that is that Pee Wee Herman? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it was a big deal because he had really gone through it by that point. You know, he had lost his show. He just was kind of persona non grata. He had become a joke, basically. So for him to be the penguin's father in the new batman movie was uh i just remember people making such a big deal about it and then of course he's only in the opening scene but um but yeah so uh, they it's these two parents that are very wealthy parents and they throw their baby <laughs> in a creek because he's deformed and then he gets raised by penguins and in the context of this movie, to your point about what you were saying, in the context of the movie, this is all serious. Like, this is, like, this is real. This is the world they live in. And that makes total sense that that would happen. <laughs> yeah, it's it's silly, but it makes, it's silly, but it makes sense. It's yeah. silly, but it's like, of course, the penguin is raised by penguins. Of course he is. That, mm-hmm. Absolutely. I will accept that. Yeah, sure. Why not? And then you have Selena Kyle, played by Michelle Pfeiffer. And uh, that was a confusing time for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so confu- every time I watch watch Michelle Pfeiffer, just like in that movie, you're just like I I I don't I don't know what my feelings are, but they're there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep, I do love that she makes an entire bodysuit out of a jacket. Yeah, 
<laughs> That's pretty fantastic. Um, but yeah, so her boss is Christopher Walken, because why wouldn't it be? And he pushes her out a window, and then she gets bit by cats and becomes a cat woman. <laughs> <laughs> like, the origins I, in this are just great. I love it. I, I, I have to say, I mean, Michelle Pfeiffer gives such a great performance in this film. She really um, does. She because she is both believable as the kind of meek, you know, we're talking about Betty Davis earlier, mm-hmm. uh, as kind of the meek sort of secretary who's like who's actually very intelligent and very capable, but really does not know how to engage in the world, right? Yeah. And and then she and it's it's you know, we I've joked before, just like this is a story of a simple lady who's pushed too far, right? <laughs> this, this is the story of a simple lady who snapped, right? That's that is Michelle Pfeiffer in this movie. And it makes complete sense. She's traumatized. She's abused by her boss. She's like, and he he doesn't just push her out a window. He like intimidates and frightens her first. Right. Yeah. Right? He's so horrible. it is. Yeah, it's it's this sadism as well. And she's just like, okay, okay, I'll just I'll become a cat and I'll just beat the shit out of men. Like that is her reaction to. <laughs> um i mean that I makes love- sense <laughs> it's a simple lady who snapped yeah one too many men were mean to her like it was just like okay i'll just i'll just kill them all <laughs> yeah yeah and look really amazing doing it <laughs> mm-hmm. but that's the thing is like i think with michelle pfeiffer what she does um because even after she has this transition she still shows up in the world as selena a lot mm-hmm. of the time which very much confuses her boss who's pretty sure she died <laughs> <laughs> and it's great um but she she even as selena she starts to um become more confident more sexual more mm-hmm. um and she ends up dating bruce wayne and i love <laughs> I love like later on when they both realize that like oh he's Batwoman oh she's Cat Batman and she's Catwoman um and she has that line about like uh, I can't remember if she says something like oh no do we have to start fighting yeah 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 (laughs) she's so like she's like oh god oh no do we have to fight like Like, I finally found a man who doesn't treat me like shit but now we have to be mortal enemies dang it so i just yeah well i i really actually love the interactions between batman and batman and catwoman and and bruce wayne and and, uh selena kyle because they they do like they make sense together and they make sense both in terms of their the persona they're like crime fighting crime villainy personas and in um like, like the way that they relate to each other outside of it these are people that understand each other at some level these are deeply traumatized people who have gone through it um and really don't know who they are and i think that that's that's something that i really like about there's something psychologically realistic amazingly Mm -hmm. enough um in particularly in their relationship and the way that they talk about the problems that they're suffering because selena's like traumatized and she's had a psychotic split basically right she doesn't know what to do she's bothered by it um, but she's like, she's definitely compelled and she's being pushed forward into something else. Bruce has had to deal with it for, you know, his entire life and he's made certain choices about it, but he has that same experience of like, you know, a little bit, and, and this is, this speaks to Michael Keaton's performance as well. 
push him a little bit farther and he's a villain. Mm-hmm. Push him a little bit farther and he's a psychopath. And it's it's this balancing act that both of them are having to do that they understand in each other. And I like the fact that while the film doesn't is not like we're now going to investigate the deep, dark recesses of their minds, it still has that. And it shows the two of them trying to relate to each other and understand each other um, in the midst of this really horrific trauma that both of them are, are going through. Yeah, it's true. Um, I also just like how this movie manages to pack in a lot of different types of of story and different themes so obviously it's a it's a superhero like villain movie and you've got that that like seedy underbelly of gotham and the crime the gangs and all that but you also have this like political stuff happening too because then you've got this billionaire shrek which is hilarious because this is way before the movie shrek and but now all i can do is think of a big green ogre um but uh anyway so he's trying to so they like um make the penguin look like this big hero and then they want him to be the mayor even though there currently is a mayor and <laughs> there's not an election for a while and in fact they, i think they just had one and um but anyway so they're trying to do this like political maneuvering too because then if if shrek can install his guy as the mayor then that'll give him a lot more opportunities to do his evil stuff too and then you have catwoman going into a partnership with penguin because she's trying to accomplish certain things and i just i i I think that's part of what um makes this such a fascinating movie is because in the midst of all this silliness you also have these these themes that are like oh no i can definitely see um but there's just this this like kind of the more mature grown-up themes to it too like with yeah. with the first movie it was really it became just batman versus joker and you just have to stop the bad guy but this is like you have to stop really bad people from completely overrunning and literally taking over every element of your city yeah yeah and and i think that i i like christopher christopher walken kind of gets forgotten in some yeah. ways in the midst of the weirdness that is the penguin and and the like when christopher walken's not the weirdest part of your movie exactly <laughs> fascinating yeah. and and he's he's great i think i think that he does he does a great job but yeah he's this he's honestly like watching you're just like is this based on donald trump um because it feels like it is in a certain sense of like this kind of figure who has taken over sections of gotham basically mm-hmm. basically bought sections of gotham i i just was i think that max shrek is a reference to the the german actor max shrek probably who, who plays uh the vampire in count orlock in nosferatu <laughs> um that's like the first time i was just like is that is this an actual character in a comic book or is this something that Tim Burton made up? Because if it's something Tim Burton made up, then this definitely comes from like Nosferatu. Yeah. Um, but I still just think of Big Green Ogre now. <laughs> this adds another layer of weirdness. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and I like, and there is that sense of like, you know, he's manipulating the penguin, but the penguin is also off on his own little tangents mm-hmm. of like, and I, one of the things that I really like about this is that the villains, the villains are not dedicated to one plot. Like Max Shrek definitely is, right? Yeah. And he's sort of like, okay, I've got to kind of arrange all of this. The Penguin is just like, 
Well, it didn't work when I ran for mayor, right? So I'll just steal all of the firstborns. I'll just do that. <laughs> it's like, well, that didn't work. Well, I'll just kill everybody then. <laughs> um, it's it is this like they just he just keeps on moving from one plot to another. He doesn't really care. He just wants to cause havoc. Yeah. And take revenge on Gotham and on the world that has rejected him, right? That's that's the undercurrent of everything. It's the same thing with Selena. Selena doesn't have a clear purpose. She wants to get Shrek. Um, but that's really about it. She does, she's not like I I have plans to take over the world or anything like that. And so she uses the penguin to kind of further those ends, or she even uses Batman or Bruce Wayne. She's just looking for like, I need to find a way to get Shrek. That's what I'm up to. Also, I want to blow up department stores and, Mm -hmm. you know, cause havoc. Um, And I do like that. Someone mentioned actually recently that uh, there, in a certain sense, both Batman and Batman Returns are very low stakes in terms of the world. There's no apocalyptic plot. Right. There's like, we're going to take over the world. We're going to destroy the world. We're going to, you know, kill everybody or anything like that. It's very much centered on Gotham. And so the stakes are high for the characters themselves, but they're very low for the viewer in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that means we can have a lot more fun with the villains. We can enjoy the Penguin a lot more. We can enjoy Selena a lot more because it doesn't feel like they're, you know, if their plots fail, well, they'll be back next week kind of thing. Right. (laughs) Yep, exactly. What a fun movie. It is a fun movie. And I I will say Danny DeVito is terrifying (laughs) um, and and very much frightened me when I was a child. Oh, yeah. I I did not see this movie when it came out, but I saw it when I I was a bit older. Um, so it would have been about six, I think, when this movie was released. Um, but I saw it when I was a bit older, and like I am haunted forever and always by Danny DeVito as the penguin. And he's just so gross. Yeah. And and grotesque. And then it get, it just gets weirder and weirder as the film goes on. And then by the end, where the penguins carry him off into the water <laughs> of the sewers and it's He's like I died. don't I was so troubled by this. the fact that there's penguins living underneath Gotham City is another fun like what <laughs> what are we doing we're here them, we're them like equipped with rocket launchers mm-hmm. at some point and yeah there's there's so many things in this film that don't make any sense when you really take a step back and I I swear this would piss off fanboys if this came if this exact film like was released this like now mm-hmm. it would make fanboys so mad they'd be just like we we're mocking Batman or something like that yeah. but it, you know yeah 1992 is it it's fantastic it's so much fun it was great but just back to Danny DeVito being really scary as the Penguin oh my gosh I was very haunted by the fact that he bit a guy's nose off <laughs> that was just like oh. That was that was horrifying to me. But yeah, now I can watch it and go, man, this movie is so dark and like in such a good way. <laughs> there's there's also there I I don't know why, but him eating the raw fish mm-hmm. 
bothers yeah, just me on it. so much. <laughs> so just gross. like, you know, yeah. And, and it's like, there's just something really disgusting about that. And I can't, I can't look away and I'm, it's so gross. And mm. he, he carries the fish around for yeah. most of that scene too. He's just like, and he's gnawing on it. Like, I don't want to see this. <laughs> he's gnawing on it like a little kid eating an ice cream cone. Like it's just, yeah. it's so weird. Yeah. But then you have, um, you have that in, you know, in opposition to or set against Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman. And one of the things that I love about just some of the little little details of of Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman, like I mentioned, she makes an entire bodysuit out of a jacket. Um, but I love that she's this woman who she's not rich. She's living in this little apartment, you know, she's working as a secretary. And so even when she becomes the Catwoman, she's not living large, you know, she's still, she's still her, she's still living within her own means. And so it's like, you see these details throughout the movie of like, where her suit will get torn, and then she's like, adds a new little, you know, little stitches to it, or she just walks around with like something to, like seams coming apart and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's just these little fun details of like, it it's. It's something that you probably don't really pay that much attention to unless you've seen the movie multiple times, you know, and you start looking at it. <laughs> but um, but it's like it just kind of fits in with that character. And I love that, yeah. that that you see these details with both of them that just really fit into to who they are in this very Tim Burton creation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, any final thoughts about Warner Brothers before we uh, before we close? <laughs> they they uh, like like you said, all of these films are right now available on HBO Max, and um, and if you, if you haven't seen them, definitely see them. If you have seen them, watch them again because particularly like rewatching Batman Returns, it has been ages since I saw Batman Returns, and I was like I'd forgotten how weird this was, but also how great it is. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, Warner Brothers for Good and Ill has had a major impact on on Hollywood. Obviously, you know, as, as you said, it's one of the few studios from the studio era that still exists. Yeah. Um, and and that actually has this, you know, ongoing history. And um, it's interesting to see those and also just to see kind of where it came from, where it's going. You know, God only knows what's going to happen to it next. Um but it it has had this this major impact on Hollywood culture and, and a major impact on American culture. Yep, it's true. And yeah, a lot of these, a lot of great historical films are available on HBO Max. They're also on Criterion. And because it is their hundredth, and we're not being sponsored for this episode, I'm just gonna say. Um, but because it is the hundredth anniversary, if you're into physical media, you can get so many Warner Brothers titles from their entire history um you can you can find them on 4k you can find them on blu-ray really discounted um also some not so discounted awesome like box sets so you i mean so many of their movies are are available to to stream or to to purchase out there in the world and as much as there are problems with the company they have produced some really fantastic films over the years some of some of them are some of my favorite movies so you know, you take the good with the bad, I guess. Well, it's it's always 
the that's always the thing with the film industry when you really <laughs> come down to it. We could talk about any major film film studio in mm-hmm. exactly the same way. It's just like let's talk about Disney sometime. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, all right. Well, thank you all so much for listening. We we really appreciate that that you've been here, and um, we especially appreciate those who help keep things going. We'd like to thank our patrons. Ollie, Brian, Connor, Estefania, Heather, James, Judy, Karen, Cariata, Matt, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, and Tao. If you'd like to become a patron yourself and help keep the show on, um, help pay for our hosting and all that fun stuff, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash citizen dame and subscribe. And with uh, with your, your help, uh, what you get in return is... Um, you get bonus episodes. We have a beef bonus episode. Um, some other things. We've got some more stuff coming your way. You get early access to episodes. We have buttons and all kinds of things. If you if you have signed up and you haven't gotten your your stuff yet, let us know. Um, I know we had a new patron or two that might not have gotten things, but I think everyone's gotten what what we're supposed to send them. So we'll we'll but let us know if you haven't. So um yeah. You can also support us at our Zazzle store, zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod and ko-fi, ko-fi.com slash citizen dame. We also do have a donate button on our website, citizen So you can just, you know, toss in a couple dollars here or there if you want. There's absolutely no obligation to do so. We do this for the love of talking about movies. Um, and uh, anything that you do does go straight into supporting, uh, supporting the show. And so, uh, yeah. We are, we are available lots of different ways too. If you want to reach out to us and and send us your thoughts. Um, And first of all, you can get us on email. Email is citizendamepod at gmail.com. And then we are on the socials. We're still on Twitter. It's still going. (laughs) (laughs) And Instagram at citizendamepod. We do have a Mastodon account. We're still holding it. I feel like that kind of like ran its course, though. I don't hear people talking yeah. about it so much. Now they're talking about other things. Yeah, now they're talking about Blue Sky, which I'm not doing yet. We're I'm waiting. So Blue Whenever- Sky is hilarious because essentially that is Jack Dorsey's new site, mm-hmm. which is the guy that just sold Twitter to Elon Musk. So now it looks like possibly the guy that created Twitter created twitter 2.0 and made it better than twitter after he sold twitter maybe we'll see (laughs) so someone mentioned that the new twitter is going to be a website that that isn't trying to be the new twitter and i think that that's a very legitimate statement like there so many social medias like twitter including twitter become big simply because of reasons like it's just people gravitate towards them Mm -hmm. and so trying to be the new twitter is almost a guarantee that you're not going to be the new twitter right yeah exactly so so anyway but when when something does replace twitter we will be there and we will tell you all about it (laughs) but i think probably one of the most fun ways to find us is on letterboxd where Mm -hmm. we are at citizen dame and we do keep lists um every month we have a new running list of all the films that we've talked about on the podcast that month um like this month (laughs) this is just such a funny granted we were off the first two weeks um so this so this is a shorter list than we normally have for an entire month but just this collection of movies like doesn't this just make you want to listen to our episodes we have creed 3 beef mafia mama renfield body heat 
The Last Seduction, Jade, Fatal Attraction, Basic Instinct, Bound, The Public Enemy, Now Voyager, and Batman Returns. <laughs> what a weird grouping of movies. And it's been so much fun. It has, yeah. It is a weird group. We have varied tastes, I we think, on this podcast. multitudes. <laughs> so, anyway. But yeah, you find us on Letterboxd and you can find our lists. We have other lists, too. We also link stuff from our website and... Um, yeah, so we're actually working on building up our letterbox more. So definitely follow us along there for, for fun stuff. And you can find us individually too. Lauren, where are you? I am on all of the various socials uh, at LH Business. And I am also on all the socials at Karen M. Peterson. So that is it for this week. We thank you so much for listening and we will catch you next time. What is she? I don't know whether to open fire or fall in love. <laughs> you poor guys. Always confusing your pistols with your brides. Don't hurt us, lady. Our take home's less than 300. You're overpaid. Hit the road. <laughs>